Welcome to another podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. You can find out more about CGI Burlington on our website at cgiburlington.org. Thank you very much, and good afternoon, brethren. Blessing for us to be here and share the Sabbath with you and just uh, enjoy your enthusiasm in the Spirit of God. I have to begin by bringing you greetings by Brother Murray, who I uh, co-pastor with in Burlington. And uh, he has just told me over and over again what a wonderful congregation this is and said, make sure that you give them my my love. So I pass on greetings from Murray, as well as from the congregation in Burlington, which is about the same size as your congregation here. I also look after a congregation in Ottawa, which is just a little bit smaller, but uh, also growing, and they bring you greetings as well. Certainly appreciate all of the service today and the, the sermonette which uh, preceded this. Certainly very inspired and appreciate that message. I want to take you, brethren, back to 1968. 1968, Mexico. It was the time of the Olympics, and a gentleman from Ethiopia named Mamo Waldi won. And he placed his time, it was just over two hours, two hours and 20 minutes. Most people, like most normal people, take four hours to run a marathon. Uh, he won it in two hours and 20 minutes. And there was quite a commotion made over his, his uh, record time. But that is not the runner of the marathon race that we remember for 1968. There's another runner which eclipsed the winner. And he is most memorable for finishing last. His name was John Stephen Aquari, and he was from Tanzania. And at the 19-mile mark, or 19-kilometer mark, he was jockeying for position and got knocked down. He uh, disjointed his shoulder and, I believe, his ankle, and he dragged himself to the finish. So the the race was over, the awards were over, the sun was setting when they noticed a runner on, on the track coming in. And so they all the cameras came to watch him finish. And one of the reporters went up to him and said, why did you bother? The race was over. We had the awards ceremony, we're packing up. Why did you finish? Listen to his answer. He said, my country did not send me 5,000 miles to start the race. They sent me 5,000 miles to finish the race. What a spirit. What an amazing spirit. And what I want to say, brethren, is our God did not call us to start this race. He has called us to finish this race. Again, we want to go back to the, the sermonette by Brother Dennis. That says we all get discouraged. <coughs> and what matters is not that we fall down, it's that we get up again. We get up again with determination to cross the finish line. Look at Ezekiel 18. Ezekiel 18. We are now in this Feast of Weeks period. This is now the second Sabbath, the count of seven Sabbaths. Seven Sabbaths must be completed to get to the Feast of Pentecost. And during the Feast of Unleavened Bread, we put leaven out of our homes, 
and then we consumed unleavened bread for seven days. And that picture seven pictures completion. Had we consumed unleavened bread for six days, and then eat leaven again on the seventh, we could not say that we have kept the days of unleavened bread. We have to see it right through to the end. And that pictures our lives. We have to live this unleavened life right through to the end. Look at Ezekiel 18. Ezekiel 18. And verse 24, notice this. Through Ezekiel, God says, But when the righteous, as any of us, we have been made righteous through Christ, when the righteous turns away from his righteousness and commits iniquity, in other words, he's turned back to leaven. When the righteous turns away from his righteousness and commits iniquity and does according to all the abominations that the wicked man does, shall he live? All his righteousness that he has done shall not be mentioned. In his trespass that he has trespassed, and in his sin that he has sinned, in them shall he die. <coughs> this is speaking to us, brethren. We have been made righteous in Christ. But there is a risk. Any one of us can turn away. Any one of us can go back to the abominations of this world. And the message here is, in that day that we do that, none of our righteousness will be even mentioned. We will die in our sin. So we have to, as again the sermonette exhorted us, we have to finish the race. We can't allow discouragement to knock us out. And, and there are these demonic spirits. We, we, we battle not with flesh and blood. It, it's not flesh and blood that's our enemy. But there are principalities. There are demonic spirits that want to knock us out. They, they are focused on us. Very much so. They understand us. They have been watching us. They have been watching mankind. And they know how to knock us out. Now that's individually. Let's talk collectively. And, and let me put you in mind of the Sardis church. Remember the evaluation? Jesus Christ's evaluation of the Sardis congregation. He says, you have a name that you are alive. But my evaluation of you is that you're dead. So we have this whole congregation of God in Christ that is doing their thing, feeling good about their thing. And Jesus Christ is looking and saying, the only thing you have is my name. Other than that, you're dead. How does that happen? How is it that a congregation in Christ doing their thing and Christ is looking and saying, you're dead. How does a church die? Let's take a look at this dynamic of how a church dies. By looking at the congregation in Corinth. Let's turn to the congregation in Corinth. And what I want to do for the sermonette, sorry, sorry, sermon, I think that's such a powerful message, it felt like the sermon. What I want to do for the sermon today is encourage us to finish the and to avoid the abominations of the wicked. And I want to further underline that the way the demonic influences knock us out is through doctrine first, behavior second. The sin that we sin is a function of what's in our minds, the belief system that we have. So what Satan and his demons will work on first 
is what's in our head. Once they can knock that out, then they can change how we behave. Then we break the cell. Then we consume leaven. But first they have to change this. So let's be very careful about the doctrine that we hold. So that's what we're going to look at today. Let's look at how a church dies. Look at 1 Corinthians 5. 1 Corinthians 5 will study this congregation in Corinth that Paul was ministering to. And in 1 Corinthians 5, a very familiar verse, I'm sure you've read it during the days of unleavened bread. 1 Corinthians 5 and verse 7 says, Purge out. That means to completely expunge. Get, get rid of it completely. Purge out, therefore, the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you are unleavened. So they had deleavened their homes, and he's saying, you know, Purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, just as you are unleavened physically. For even Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Now, there's a problem with this passage. I shouldn't say, I shouldn't say a problem with the passage. There's a problem with us reading this passage. And the problem with us reading this passage is we get very spiritual very quickly. So we read this passage, and if you're like me, the way that I would interpret this is, okay, I've got to get rid of the leaven out of my life so that I can be a new person in Christ, and, and that's how I should keep the feast. Well, I don't know if that's your interpretation, but that was mine. That's okay, but that's not what the Apostle is saying. So let's put that thinking of this sort of, I've got to be a better Christian, Let's put that thinking aside for a moment, and let's just read what the Apostle is writing. Let's not, let's not put our interpretation in before can. Let's just listen to the Apostle. So let's get the context of this by going to verse 1. 1 Corinthians 5 and verse 1, what is the Apostle talking about? It is reported commonly. In other words, everybody knows. This is no hidden secret. Everybody knows something about the church. It is reported commonly that there is, the English translation says fornication, the Greek word is porneia, which is sexual immorality. So it is reported commonly that there is sexual immorality among you. And such sexual immorality as is not so much as named among the Gentiles. What is it? In this case it's adultery. Incest. That one should have his father's wife. So this was going on in the congregation. There was a man who was having relations with his father's wife. Not only was it happening in the congregation, everybody knew about it. It was common knowledge. Verse 2 he says, and on top of that, so this is happening, on top of that, you are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he that has done this deed Notice this, might be deleavened. This is what he's talking about. As a congregation, you have allowed leaven in your midst, and you have not deleavened your congregation. You have not taken the sin out of your congregation. He says you, that he has done this thing might be taken away from you. For verily, as absent in body but present in spirit, 
I've judged this matter already, as though I were present, concerning him that has so done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together, and my spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. In other words, you're not doing this guy any favors. He's there in the congregation, thinking that he's one of us, and becoming hardened to the word of God. You're, you're not helping him, and you're not helping the congregation. By the power of Jesus Christ. You think Jesus Christ is just this image on a cross that's just anything goes? No. By the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, take that man out of the congregation. De-leaven your congregation. Verse 6. Your glorying is not good. Don't you know that all it takes is a little leaven which leavens the whole lump? The lump is not an individual. He's not talking to me as an individual. He's not talking to you as an individual. The lump is the congregation. A little sin in the congregation, that's all it takes, will kill the whole congregation. This is how a congregation does. This is how a congregation ends up with a name that they are alive, but they're dead. They allow the leaven in, and they don't do anything about it. So this is why he's saying, purge out. Purge out this ancient leaven. So the word old, if you look up the Greek word, it means ancient. It means this is leaven that is really, really, really old. And we know ancient Israel understood that yeast is a living organism. <coughs> So when they would prepare their bread, they would never bake the whole lump. They would take some of that dough and keep it back, because there was a, a living organism in it. And so they would bake the rest, but they would keep some back, mix in more flour and water, and whatever that living organism was that was in that little bit of dough, it would leaven the whole new lump. And they would keep going with that until the days of unleavened bread. Then they had to get rid of it. But everybody else, the Egyptians, they would just keep this thing going, living, 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 living. So yeast can live, keep on living, living. And Paul is saying, you've got leaven in your congregation, which is, it's been alive for a long time. It's really, really old. You've got to get rid of that. Look, to show you that he hasn't changed the subject here, if you see verses 6 uh, and 7 and 8 as an aside, he's saying, your glory isn't good. You don't understand this. You've got to purge this out. But verse 9 He's getting back to the topic at hand. He hasn't, he's not talking about something different. He says in verse 9, I wrote unto you in an epistle not to keep company with the porneo, the sexually immoral. Don't keep company with them. Yet not altogether with the porneo of the world, or with the covetous or extortioners or with idolaters. If, if I was saying that, you would have to go out of the world. Because they're all immoral. I wasn't saying, don't keep company with people in the world who are immoral. Look at what I was saying to you, verse 11. But now, I have written unto you, not to keep company, if any man that is called a brother be a pornea. So if, if a Christian is sexually immoral, that's what I was writing to you about. Don't keep company with that kind of Christian. Or covetous, or an idolater, or a railer, or a drunkard, or an extortioner, with such a one, know not to eat. 
For what have I to judge them also that are without? Do, do you not judge them that are within? But them that are without, God judges. Notice this, verse 13. The pro, the, it's all about the leavening the congregation. So this is his point. Therefore, put away from among yourselves that wicked person. That, that, that behavior in the congregation will kill the whole congregation. So be a new lump. The, the lump is the congregation. De-leaven that sexually immoral person so that you can keep the beast as a new lump. As a de-leavened lump. Now, he said to the congregation, purge out that really old leaven. He pointed to this individual and his behavior as ancient leaven. What is that? What is this ancient leaven that he's speaking of? To find out, we have to go back to Genesis. Genesis is the book of origins. Genesis is where everything begins. And there's a leaven that is, in, that is happening in Corinth, which is ancient. And we find it in Genesis 10. Let's go to Genesis 10. <clears throat> Genesis is all about origin. We find here Adam as the originator of the human race. Here we find Noah as the originator of the human race after the flood. Here we find uh, Ham, Shem, and Japheth, the originators of the different uh, family groups. Here we find Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. All the originators are here. There's one originator that we don't think of very often. But he is equally important in terms of his impact on mankind. And we find it in Genesis 10. Genesis 10, verse 6, says the sons of Ham, from this particular family group, Cush, which we know to be the father of Ethiopia, Mizraim, the father of Egypt, Phut, the father of Libya, and Canaan, or Canaan, the Canaanites. Verse 7, the sons of Cush, and then verse 8, Cush begat Nimrod. Nimrod is an originator. He is a father. He's the father of our civilization. We, we need to pay attention to that. <coughs> Nimrod married Semiramis. Semiramis was Cush's wife. Nimrod had his father's wife. So in Corinth, when they had this man who had his father's wife, Paul says, get rid of that ancient leaven. It, it's old. It goes all the way back to Nimrod. The arrogance of this man against God who just flouted God's commandments and had his father's wife. This is Nimrod. It says here that he began to be a mighty one in the earth, a gabor, a, a, a tyrant. In other words, he had God-like status in the earth. The people worshipped him. They looked up to him. Verse 9, he was a mighty hunter. The word here says before, better translated, against. He was a mighty hunter against the Lord. Wherefore it is said, even as Nimrod, the mighty hunter against the Lord. And we still have this language today. If I were to say to you that there was something that needed to be done that required superhuman strength, 
you might hear me say, well, that's going to require Herculean effort. The strength of Hercules, which is the, the Roman version of Nimrod. So, so Nimrod sprinkles into all these different cultures, and he shows up with different names. But they would say, the strength of Hercules. In this language, they would say, the strength of Nimrod. Or the scripture says, where it is said, even as Nimrod, the mighty hunter, <laughs> so he becomes known as Baal, as Ninus, as Zoroaster, Mars, Ares, Egyptus, Sesostris, Dagda, Cronus, Orion, Osiris, Jupiter, Heracles, Hercules. He's, in every culture he is known, but by different names. How did that happen? And his mother, wife, Semiramis, is known as Aphrodite, Venus, Astarte, Ishtar, Isis, many, many names, different cultures. Genesis 10, verse 10 says, the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, Kalna, in the land of Shinar. And this one, Akkad, we know today as Nimrud. And we see Isis over there destroying everything. Well, that's a shame, because that points back to the beginning of civilization. Nimrod really is the founder of civilization. And this is how he began to spread his kingdom. And very much how you see ISIS today just conquering village after village. They'll conquer one village, then they'll conquer the next one, and they'll send a message to the next one, we're coming. And people will just lay down their arms and say, we don't fight. Because they are just so ruthless. That they learned from Nimrod. That is how Nimrod expanded his kingdom back in this day. Verse 11. Out of that land went forth Asher, so he's also the founder of Assyria, that built Nineveh, and the city of Rehoboth and Kala. Now, let's go to verse, chapter 11, and verse 1. Notice this, chapter 11. So Nimrod is at work here, and when coming to chapter 11, the whole earth is of one language. So it's not like today where we all speak different languages. Uh, Everybody at this time spoke one language. (coughs) But that's not all. Don't miss this. It's not just that the whole earth was of one language. The scripture also says, and of one speech. So, So language, I'm using English, and you're using English, and through language, I'm using words to convey meaning. So there's an ideology that I have that I'm using the English language to convey the ideology to you. And you either accept it or reject it. So there's a difference between language and ideology. And here what the scripture is saying is not only did the whole earth have the same language, what came out of their mouth, the ideology was the same. Everyone was was in agreement that Nimrod is the mighty hunter. Nimrod is the one to be worshipped. And the whole earth words. Verse 2. And it came to pass, as they journeyed from the east, so they're hearing of the, the, the might of Nimrod, and so the people are journeying from the east, that they found a plain in the land of Shinar. Now they're in Babylon, in, in the Iraq area, where, where Nimrod is. So they're coming to Nimrod, and they dwelt there. Verse 3. And 
they said one to another, Come on, let's make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and slime they had for mortar. And they said, Let us build a city and a tower. So notice this. It's a city and a tower. City represents government. How to control people. How to keep people in conformity. Tower represents religion. How do we get a doctrine in the people to control them? So Nimrod is the founder of civilization. And the foundation of our civilizations is controlling people with religion. Politics and religion combined to control people. This is what Nimrod brought to us. And so they want to now build a city and a tower to honor him, whose top may reach unto heaven. And let us make a name, let us make us a name, lest we be scattered. So they know they're acting against God. They've just come through the flood. There's no doubt about God. This is a mighty hunter against God. And now we need to establish ourselves so that God can't do this to, to us again. And everybody is in agreement. Now, when we read this, whose top may reach unto heaven, I don't know if you're like me, but because of the psychological impact of the teaching of evolution, sometimes I can't help but look at the past with a bit of a downward glance. Kind of feeling sorry for them because they're not as smart as us. I mean, if they had iPads at this time, you know, then I might respect them. <laughs> but, you know, they're just building with bricks and they're trying to build a tower that goes to heaven. What crazy people. Well, when the archaeologists look at these building projects, they're astonished. They don't understand. Some of these bricks are 2,000 tons and they're hoisted 50 feet in the air. And they have no idea. How did they move them? How did they hoist them? No idea. So these people were doing something that we can't do. Even when we look at the pyramids, the precision of moving these bricks that are significant, and they're moved with precision, astrologically, geometrically, geographically on the earth, there is such science behind everything they're doing. We look at it and say, so these people are not to be looked down upon. They had some science, they had some technology that we should regard highly. They were doing something significant. <coughs> just before I talk about how God reacts to this, I just want to uh, point you to Genesis 18 just to show you the impact of city life. When, when you get people living in a city, they do the craziest things. Why? Because everybody else is doing crazy things. It's, it's, like, it's, it's amazing. My wife and I were just in London, where everybody, I mean everybody, is getting their eyebrows done. I, I think it's because of the Muslim influence there that the women can only just show this. So this is their one way of beautifying themselves. But when I say everybody, I mean even men. Even men. I'm seeing men with their eyebrows done and, and bright yellow socks. But because everybody's doing it, they're doing it. You see women, half naked, 
But if you lived in the country, you wouldn't dress like that. If you live in the city and everybody else does it, you do it too. It's just so easy to control people when you have them in close proximity and you force control. Genesis 11. These people were doing something for with Nimrod and for Nimrod that we must not take lightly. They were building something. They had science. They had technology. They were driven. And they were building this tower and this city to honor Nimrod and Semiramis. And God looked at it. And God didn't say, oh, what foolish people. Oh, how silly. God looked at it, and basically, he dialed 911. He said, we need to do something. This is serious. These, these guys have influence of Satan. They are working with the demonic world. And they are doing something significant. And they are all of one speech. They all share the same ideology. And we, we need to move now. Verse 5. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of men were building. And the Lord said, Behold, the people are one. They have one ideology with Nimrod. And they all have one language, so they can share this ideology. And this is what they begin to do. And now nothing will be restrained from them, which they have imagined. So when we get all of humanity in agreement with the devil, this is trouble. And God said, Let's move. Let's stop this. Verse 7. Come on, let's go down and confound their language that they may not understand one another's speech. What is significant, brethren, about verse 7 when we juxtapose it to verse 1 is God only addresses the language. He doesn't address the ideology. So all he said here is they all have the same ideology, they all have the same language. Let's confuse the language. The ideology is the same. Verse 8. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there upon the face of all the earth, and they, they left off building the city. In other words, they were interrupted. Therefore, verse 9, is the name called Babel, because the Lord did confound the language of all the earth, and from there did the Lord scatter them abroad from the face of I don't know if you have ever been deep into something and then get interrupted. Maybe the phone rings or something calls you away. If you are deep into it, if it was a really important project, you can't wait to deal with the interruption so that you can get back to what you were doing. This was a big project. This is like the biggest project of mankind. This is all of our knowledge, all of our science, all of our technology and we got interrupted. Not only did we get interrupted, we were then scattered. I want you to look at something in Acts 8, because that's sort of a counterpoint to this. Look at Acts 8. We will see another people that were scattered. And, and how did they respond to the scattering? Acts 8 and verse 1, And Saul, later to become the Apostle Paul, was consenting unto the death of Stephen. And at that time, there was a great persecution against the church that was at Jerusalem. So remember, they were told to stay in Jerusalem. Uh, even in Luke, when, when Christ was, uh, was dying, he told them, stay in Jerusalem. 
until you receive power. So they're all in Jerusalem, that's when they received the Holy Spirit, so now they're still in Jerusalem. And they, it says here, there was a great persecution that then came to the church at Jerusalem. Notice this. And they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Now drop down to verse 4. So we have them all together with one ideology. We now have them scattered. In verse 4, Therefore, they that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the doctrine. So, so the scattering didn't change the doctrine. It just meant they had to spread out with the doctrine. So now when we think of Genesis 11, we see that they were all of one ideology. And then God changed the language. He didn't change the ideology. So now they are scattered. And they're taking this project that they began, building a city, building a tower, controlling people, worshipping Nimrod, worshipping Semiramis. And the only thing that has changed is their foundation. So now we see this foundation of civilization going all over the world. Every city, every nation, every government traces its roots back to Nimrod. And what they learned from Nimrod in terms of how to control a population with one exception. And only one exception. Only one exception. That is in the midst of all of this demonic darkness that mankind since Adam basically has sold out to the devil and is now under the control of the devil. And remember the devil said, I will be like the Most High. I will have everybody worship me. So that's the devil's agenda. He's now got this man Nimrod working his agenda. The whole earth is a ideology. And then there's this man Terah who's also of this ideology, who has a son called Abraham. And Abraham responds to God. And God responds to Abraham and makes a covenant with Abraham in the midst of all of this darkness. And he sets up Abraham and his children, now the children of Israel, as a counterculture to the civilization of mankind. Mankind have their ideology, they have their religion, which is all about worshipping Nimrod and Semiramis and therefore the devil. They have their customs and their laws. And then there's this nation that is It has God's laws. And it has the God of Israel as their God. And they are being set up as the model to teach all mankind. To ultimately free mankind from the oppression of the devil. You saw in Genesis 10, Mizraim was there, Egypt, and he was worshipping Nimrod. So now when the cultures, or I should say the people groups are scattered, Mizraim goes to Egypt, and he starts his civilization. And he calls on Nimrod as the author of his authority. So he is now setting up his civilization with Nimrod as his first god. The Assyrians do the same thing. If you look at the history of Assyria and the kings of Assyria, Sargon, Sennacherib, uh, Tiglath-Pileser, these are ruthless kings, ruthless, cruel. Where did they learn that? From Nimrod. Where did Egypt learn it? From Nimrod. 
They've all learned from Nimrod. Babylon becomes the first world ruling empire. From Babylon, we then get the, the, the Medes and the Persians, then the Greeks, then the Romans. The Babylonians, their founder is Nimrod. That's the founding religion, that's the founding political movement. When the Persians come and take over, they inherit the wise men of Babylon. So whatever mystical ways Nimrod learned to rule over men, all of that is preserved through the Babylonian religion. Those wise men, those sorcerers, they go and they now work for a new ruler in Persia. When the Greeks take over, same thing. When the Romans take over, same thing. Our civilization today, same thing. These rulers have secrets that are passed down from one generation to another. Egypt is now running along parallel to Babylon. Babylon, or Mesopotamia, where they began, they had the Euphrates and the Tigris. That's sort of the beginning of their civilization. They need that water. Egypt had the river Nile, this very long river. So they started to build their civilizations across, along the river Nile. And the same way we see at ISIS today, conquer, 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 and this massive empire. It becomes the epitome of civilization. It's not a world ruling empire, but it is a civilized empire. So we have the Babylonian version of Nimrodism, and then we have the Egyptian version. Both of these will converge with the Greek Empire. Because the Greeks became the philosophers. And they went all over the world seeking for wisdom. Especially Egypt. So they already inherited from Babylon through Persia, the Medes, down to Greek. That's one way of inheriting this Nimrod philosophy. The other thing they did is they went to Egypt. And they learned the secrets from Egypt. The Rosicrucians have a museum in San Jose that is devoted to Egypt. It's one of the largest collections of Egyptian antiquity in the world. Why would the Rosicrucians have such an interest in Egypt? Listen to what they say on their own website. The Rosicrucian movement, this is the Rosen Cross Secret Society, of which the Rosicrucian order is the most prominent modern representative, has its roots in the mystery traditions, philosophies, and myths of ancient Egypt. So you had mentioned, uh, Brother Dennis, in your sermonette, the rod, and how when Moses split the Red Sea with the rod, but also when he went to Pharaoh, remember, and he challenged Pharaoh and said, let my people go that they may worship me in the wilderness. And Pharaoh said no. And Aaron threw down the rod, and what happened? It became a serpent. <coughs> was, was Pharaoh terrified? Was Pharaoh like, wow, this is supernatural? Or did Pharaoh just snap his fingers and call for his sorcerers? And said, this, is, this, this doesn't impress me. I have communion with spiritual forces. I wouldn't have this kind of control over men if I weren't in communion with spiritual forces, which I learned from Nemo. So he called for his sorcerers, and they threw down their rods, which became sorcerers. These are the secrets, the mystical schools, that the masses don't have access to this knowledge. 
But this secret knowledge has been passed down from one generation to the next. And the Greeks went to Egypt in search of this. And so now the Rosicrucians say this, that they're tracing their roots back to ancient Egypt. Thousands of years ago in ancient Egypt, select bodies or schools were formed to explore the mysteries of life and learn the secrets of this hidden wisdom. <coughs> Only sincere students displaying a desire for knowledge and meeting certain tests were considered worthy of being inducted into these mysteries. And so all of these uh, secret societies, the Rosicrucians, the Shriners, the Freemasons, they all trace their roots back to Egypt and back to Babylon. And they all have uh, initiates and levels. And you have to prove yourself worthy to get up to the higher levels. And this is, these are the rulers of our society. And it all goes back to Egypt. It all goes back to Babylon. It says here, centuries later, Greek philosophers, such as Thales and Pythagoras, and we know Plato and Socrates, others journeyed to Egypt and were initiated into the mystery schools. And that began this whole uh, Gnosticism within uh, the Greek culture. Their experiences are the first records of what eventually grew and blossomed into the Rosicrucian order. So this ancient knowledge is still with us today. It's like yeast, where you just keep passing it from, from lump to lump, and it lives on. And so this ancient, this ancient leaven is with us today. Now, we have the Abrahamic culture coming through Isaac, coming through uh, Jacob. That's who God made the covenant with. They are a counterculture to everyone else. And they are said to be a model to everyone else, which actually happened in the rule of Solomon. So Solomon finally establishes, finally, things took them 400 years to get it right. But they finally, through David's efforts, clear the land and establish the kingdom of Israel. People all over the world are asking about the wisdom of Israel. And they travel from all over the world to learn of the wisdom of Israel and the God of this Israel, this nation. Now, that's the first part of Solomon's reign. What about the second part? Let's go to 1 Kings 11. 1 Kings 11. Look at what Solomon does to Israel. 1 Kings 11 and verse 1, but King Solomon, but, there's a problem, he loved many strange women, together with the daughter of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Zidonians, and Hittites, of the nations concerning which the Lord said to the children of Israel, you shall not go into them, neither shall they come in unto you. Why? For surely, guaranteed, Without a doubt, they are dealing with some demonic influence here. Don't mess with me. Because surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clave unto these in love. So all of these Nimrod descendants who have learned how to worship the devil from Nimrod, Israel is to be set apart from them and to be the model nation to them. What does Solomon do? He goes to all these nations, and he brings their women into Israel. 
And with their women comes their worship practices and their immorality. And he had, verse 3, 700 wives, all from these nations, princesses, and 300 concubines. And his wives turned away as wise as he was, as much as he loved God, as much as God loved him. He didn't finish the race. He didn't finish the race. He allowed false doctrine to get into his head. And God warned him, they will surely turn. You're, you're, you're not so strong that you can resist this. Stay away from it. A little leaven, leavens the whole lot. And surely they'll turn your heart away, and surely they did. Verse 4. For it came to pass, when Solomon was old, that his wives turned away his heart, notice this, after other gods. And his heart was not perfect with the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth. This is Semiramis, in another language. The goddess of the Zidonians. After Milcom, this is uh, Nimrod, in the language of the Ammonites. Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord, and went not fully after the Lord, as did his father. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, Nimrod, the abomination of Moab, in the hill that is before Jerusalem, right in front of Jerusalem. And for Molech, again this is Nimrod, in the abomination of the Ammonites. And likewise he did for all of his strange wives, which burnt incense and sacrificed unto their gods. So all of this false evil worship that Israel was set up to be a counterculture against. Solomon goes searching for it and brings it all back into the nation. brings it into the nation of Israel. Compare now Deuteronomy 18. Deuteronomy 18. <coughs> Look at the warning from God to Israel. Deuteronomy 18 and verse 9. When you are come into the land which the Lord your God gives you, you shall not learn to do after the abominations of those nations. Those nations, remember, were founded by Nimrod, the mighty hunter, the rebel against the Lord. So the foundation of all of these nations is rebellion against God. They are, they are founded on abominations. This is why the, the term Gentile Gentiles just means nations. There's Israel, and then there's all these other nations which don't know God. And so we call them Gentiles. They're all founded on abomination and rebellion. Verse 10. There shall not be found among you anyone that makes his son or his daughter to pass through the fire. So human sacrifice. Satan required them to sacrifice their children to him. And this is what these nations were doing. Israel, when you come when you come into the land, don't do this. Don't do this. Or that uses divination. Or an observer of times, an astrologer. Or an enchanter. Or a witch. These are real phenomena. This, this is real. This is what these nations are into. This is what they learned from Nimrod. The rebel against the Lord. The one who is in league with Satan. And, and God is saying, I'm, I'm taking you into this land. I want you to clear the world and set up the models so that we can save mankind from this darkness. 
or a charmer, verse 11, or a consulter with familiar spirits, or a wizard, or a necromancer. For all that do these things are an abomination unto the Lord. It's an abomination. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God does drive them out before you. You shall be perfect with the Lord your God. For these nations, these Gentiles, which you shall possess, hearken unto observers of times and unto diviners. That's what they do. But as for you, the Lord your God has not suffered you to do so. Let's fast forward now from Solomon. And if we go to 2 Kings 16, we see that Ahaz was 20 years old when he began to reign. And he reigned for 16 years. So this is the king of Judah. After Solomon has brought this all back into, into Israel, 2 Kings 16 says, Ahaz did not do that which was right in the sight of the Lord his God like David's father. Verse 3, he walked in the way of the kings of Israel and made his son to pass through the fire. The king of Judah engaged in human sacrifice as they learned from these Gentile nations. Look at Ezekiel 8. He made his son pass through the fire according to the abominations of the heathen whom the Lord cast out from before the children of Israel. And make no mistake, brethren, in our society today, we are still sacrificing children. There is still human sacrifice. There's still a devil that requires human sacrifice. This happens this way. Ezekiel 8 and verse 5, God says to Ezekiel, Son of man, lift up your eyes now, the way toward the north. So I lifted up my eyes, the way toward the north. And behold, northward at the gate of the altar was the image of jealousy in the entrance. This is the nation of Israel. This is the model for the rest of the world. And here we're seeing how corrupt they were. He said further unto me, Son of man, do you see what they do? Verse 6. Even the great abominations that the house of Israel commits here, that I should go far off from my sanctuary, but turn you yet again, and you shall see even greater abominations. This is the nation of Israel. A little leaven, leaven is a whole one. Whole nation becomes corrupt. You shall see even greater abominations than this. In verse 7, you brought me to the door of the court, and when I looked, behold, a hole in the wall. And he said, Son of man, dig now in the wall. And when I digged in the wall, behold, a door. And he said to me, Go in, and behold the wicked abominations that they do here. So I went in and saw, and behold, every form of creeping things and abominable beasts and all the idols of the house of Israel portrayed upon the wall round about. And there stood before them seventy men of the ancients of the house of Israel, so these are the leaders, and in the midst of them stood Jezaniah, the son of Shephan, with every man his censer in his hand, and a thick cloud of incense went up, so this is idol worship they're engaged in. Then he said unto me, Son of man, have you seen what the ancients of the house of Israel do in the dark? Every man in the chambers of his imagery. For they say the Lord sees us not. The Lord has forsaken the earth. He said unto me, Turn you yet again, and you shall see even greater abominations that they do. Verse 14. Then he brought me to the door of the gate of the Lord's house, 
which was toward the north, and behold, behold, this is Israel, this is in the temple, there sat women weeping for Tammuz. Tammuz is Nimrod. Tammuz is uh, Semiramis saying that when Nimrod was killed, that he was resurrected, that she had a virgin miraculous birth, and he was resurrected. And so this mother and child that you see in ancient Egypt, which is cascaded into every religion, Mary, mother of God, this is Semiramis and Tammuz. And the children of Israel, the women, were weeping for Tammuz in the temple. A little leaven. the whole one. Then he said to me, Have you seen this? Verse 15, O son of man, turn you yet again, and you shall see even greater abominations than these. And he brought me into the inner court of the Lord's house, and behold, at the door of the temple of the Lord, between the porch of the altar, were about twenty-five men, their backs toward the temple of the Lord, their faces toward the east, and they worshipped the sun toward the east. They were worshipping the so, so when Nimrod was resurrected, it said that he came in the form of the sun. And so that's where Sunday worship comes from. And now we have Israel waiting for the sunrise and turning their back on the temple and worshiping Nimrod. A little leaven. Leaven is the whole one. How tragic. Verse 17. He said unto me, O son of man, have you seen this? Is it a light thing to the house of Judah that they commit the abominations which they commit here? For they have filled the land with violence and have returned to provoke me to anger. And they, they put their branch to their nose. Now, quickly, Jeremiah 5. Just, let's uh, just continue this theme. Jeremiah 5. We saw in uh, Sodom, where Abraham had negotiated with God, if he could find ten men, that he wouldn't destroy the city. Look now in Jeremiah 5, when dealing with Jerusalem. We're not dealing with Sodom. We're dealing with Jerusalem. The people of God. Jeremiah 5, verse 1. Run you to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem. Be thorough. Go up and down. And see now and know. And seek in the broad places thereof. If you can find a man. One man. If there be any that executes judgment. That seeks the truth. And I will pardon it. So if you can find one man in Jerusalem, the people of God, if you can find one righteous man, God said, I'll spare the city. Just find one. You think it would be the other way around. That we could find ten in Jerusalem. God said, just find one. And they said to, and, and though they say, the Lord lives, even though they, they say the Lord lives, they swear falsely. They have a name that they're alive, but they're dead. O Lord, verse 3, are not your eyes upon the truth? You have stricken them, but they have not grieved. You have consumed them, but they have refused to receive correction. They have refused to receive correction. They have made their faces harder than a rock. They have refused to return. Therefore I said, surely these are the poor. They are foolish. For they know not the way of the Lord, nor the judgment of their God. I will get me unto the great men of Israel, of Judah, and will speak unto them. For they have known the way of God, and the judgment of their God. But these have altogether broken the yoke and burst the bonds. Wherefore, a lion out of the forest shall slay them, and a wolf of the evening shall spoil them, and a leper shall watch over their cities. Everyone that goes out there shall be torn in pieces, because their transgressions are many, and their backslidings are increased. And he then goes on to say that they are full of adultery, and none of them know God. And this is the people of God, both small and great. 
just as we saw, both small and great were corrupt in Jerusalem. Both small and great are corrupt. A little leaven. Look at Revelation 18. Revelation 18. Revelation 18 and verse 1. After these things I saw another angel come down from heaven, having great power, and the earth was lightened with his glory. So this angel just caused brightness to come upon the earth. And he cried mightily with a strong voice, saying, Babylon, the great is fallen. So we saw where Babylon began, and we see that in the future, we're not, we're not here yet. Revelation is future. Babylon only falls in the future. That means it's still around today. And that means from, from its founding up until this verse, it stands. It takes different forms. It's a mystery religion. It's hard for us to see it clearly, but it's all around us. Finally, in the future, it falls. It's fallen. It became the habitation of devils, and the hold of every foul spirit, a cage of every unclean and hateful bird. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, organized demonic powers. This is who we're up against. And this is what Babylon is housing. Verse 3. For all nations, every one of them, even Israel, all, now it's all nations. All nations. When, when the scripture says the devil deceives the whole world, that means that he deceives the whole world. It, it means the whole world. All nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her pornea. So what Semiramis did with Nimrod and the doctrine that they began there, all nations have bought into this. And they're drunk with it. These are human beings made in God's image who are drunk with this doctrine. And the kings of the earth have committed pornea with her. They've learned how to rule with this demonic influence from her. And the merchants of the earth are waxed rich through the abundance of her delicacies. So her doctrine leads to riches for them. They can commercialize Christmas. They can commercialize uh, Easter. They can commercialize Jihad. And, and when you see Roman Catholics fighting Muslims, it's all the same thing. It's one version of Nimrod, the bully Nimrod, fighting another version of the bully Nimrod. It's the same route. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people. Come out of her. She's deceived the whole world. The whole world is engaged in this. But you, come out of her. Doctrinally, come out of her, my people. That you may not be partakers of her sins. It starts with her doctrine. It follows with sin. Get the doctrine right. Come out of her. That you may not be partakers of her sins. That you receive not her plagues. <coughs> Second Corinthians. As we, we wrap up now, Second Corinthians, 
verse 11. Sorry, chapter 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. <coughs> the Apostle Paul is pleading with this dying church at Corinth. We don't want them to end up like Sardis, where they have a name that they are alive, but they're dead. <coughs> He's pleading with them, and he says, I beg to God that you would bear with me a little in my folly. So his folly is that he's promoting himself and his credentials. But he has to do this because they're following false apostles. So he's embarrassed that he has to do this. He's begging their patience with him and that they would indeed bear with him. Why? Why is he doing this? For I am jealous over you with godly jealousy. Godly jealousy. Because I have engaged you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. So this congregation, he's saying, I've espoused you to Christ. My job is to present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. What does he say next? I'm afraid. Even, even though I've engaged you to Christ, I'm afraid that you will be an immoral woman. You're going to sleep around. And then I'm going to have the embarrassing duty of presenting an unchaste woman to Christ. But I fear, I'm afraid, lest notice this by any means. Satan doesn't want to get you out of the race if he can, as long as he doesn't break the rules. Scripture says, by any means. He has one objective. It's to knock us out. He doesn't care how. He doesn't care when. It doesn't have to be today. He's patient. It could be tomorrow. He'll wait. But he wants his objective. He does not want us to finish the race. He wants to knock us out. I'm afraid, lest by any means, notice this, as the serpent beguiled Eve, how did he do it? Through his subtlety. I'm afraid. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I'm afraid through his subtlety, you'll allow in a little bit of that. And once you do that, Satan can sit back. I just, I just have to get this little bit of leaven in there. And what, just once it's in, I'm okay. Because it will grow. Through his subtlety. In the same way, your minds should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. For if he that comes, verse 4, preaches another Jesus, whom we have not preached, I preach you the power of Jesus, and with the power of Jesus, take that man who is committing pornea and cast him out of the church. That's the Jesus Christ I'm coming with. But I'm afraid somebody's going to come with this kind of loosey-goosey, anything-goes-Jesus Christ. And you're going to accept it. I'm afraid. For if he that comes preaches another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or if you receive another spirit which, we have not, which you have not received from us, or another gospel, which you've not accepted, that you're in a condition that you'll put up with it. And all it takes is a little. All it takes is a little. When the serpent deceived Eve, remember, he deceived her first doctrine. First doctrine, then behavior. He didn't just come to Eve and say, oh, eat that fruit. He got into her mind first. 
He changed her doctrine first. He changed her perception of God first. He made her think of God as someone who was not a benefactor. Someone who was competing with her. Someone who wanted to hold something back from her. Once her doctrine changed, he could change her being. So the Apostle says, I'm afraid that the same way the subtlety of Satan deceived Eve, that in that same way he would seduce you doctrinally first behaviors, and you don't even realize it. Let's conclude, brethren, in 1 Timothy. <coughs> 1 Timothy 4 and verse 1 says this, Now the Spirit speaks Spirit is not hiding anything from us. This is manifestly being spoken to us. Very clearly being spoken to us. This is a very clear warning that in the latter times, our times, some shall depart from the faith. I wish I had better news. I wish I was here and I could say to you, everyone that God calls, we're all going to cross the finish line. I can't say that. I'd be speaking against the Spirit. Because the Spirit expressly warns that in the latter times, some will depart from the faith. Not everyone's going to finish the race. Giving heed to seducing spirits and notice doctrines of devils. The attack is doctrinal first behavioral second. They've got to knock us out with doctrine first. As long as we hold on to our relationship with Christ and with the Father, they can't knock us out. Once they play with our relationship with God, once they play with our doctrine, they can knock us out. There were 75 people that began the race in 1968. Only 57 when you run a race, when the race is over, what you do is you go to the, the listing and they show everybody, the top, the winner, and then everybody, and beside your time. And you want to know that you beat your time, that everybody sets a goal, and you train so that you can reach your goal. And you're looking for your time. And you're not competing with anybody else, you're competing with yourself. But there are two shameful things that you can see on the list instead of your time. One is bandit. You'll see Adrian Davis and then beside will say bandit. Meaning I didn't register. I didn't pay. I just, oh sorry, wouldn't say Adrian Davis, just say the number. They'll just say bandit. You don't know who he is, but he ran in two hours and 25 minutes. He's a bandit. Somebody who didn't play by the rules. We know that we have to compete in this race. We can't be bandits. Corinth had a bandit in the congregation. And Paul said, de-level the congregation, get the bandit out. The other thing, which is even more shameful for a run, is when you train and you train and you train, and you go up and you look at the list and you see your name, and beside your name it says, D-N-F. 
or did not finish. Did not finish. 75 people began that race in 1968. Only 57 finished. And John Stephen Aquari is honored because even though he fell, even though there was no hope of him winning the race, he understood that his country sent him to finish the race. He got up, he dragged himself, and he finished. We must finish. Drop down to verse 16. As we are counting towards Pentecost and learning these life lessons year after year, let's take the lessons of unleavened bread, let's take the lessons that we learned from these holy days, and let's apply verse 16. Verse 16, 1 Timothy 4, verse 16. Take heed unto yourself. Pay attention. We have enemies. We have people that want, we have beings that want to knock us out. Take heed unto yourself. Notice this. And unto the doctrine. Take heed unto yourself and unto the doctrine. Hold on to this doctrine. We have witnessed people allowing this doctrine to be corrupted. Bringing false doctrine into the church. We can't do this. Take heed to ourselves and to the doctrine. Continue in them. Finish the race. Hold on to this doctrine. Don't let anyone seduce you away. The Spirit expressly says that not all will finish the race. Some will give heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of demons. You, take heed to yourself and unto the doctrine. Continue in them. For in doing this, you shall both save yourself and then that here.
This has been a podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. We hope you are blessed by it. To find out more about CGI Burlington, visit our website at cgiburlington.org.